Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. What's brown and sticky? What? A stick. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Craig Marks, one of the authors of the new book, I Want My MTV. It's about MTV and wanting it. Is that clear to everybody? (laughs) We'll be speaking to Craig about that book later. We'll also learn some things we didn't know from Sir Richard Branson, the only guy to bankroll both an airline and the Sex Pistols. Also, author Jonathan Lethem fantasizes about Drew Barrymore. Judy Collins tells us about songs she wishes were written about her. And Emily Post's great-grandchildren answer your etiquette questions. It would be rude to miss that. It would. Plus, a new track from the band Tennis. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, people have been talking about these cultural headlines. Eddie Murphy has announced that he will no longer be hosting the 84th Annual Academy Awards. Julie Taymor, the fired director of the Spider-Man musical, suing the producers for continuing to use her ideas. Smokin' Joe Frazier, legendary for his fights against Muhammad Ali, has died. Now for something you might not have read about. We're talking with Richard Lawson. He is senior arts and culture writer for The Atlantic Wire. That's The Atlantic's website. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about at dinner party? this weekend. I'm going to be talking about a uh, Canadian paint company that has renamed a bunch of their paints to appeal to to men to be more masculine. Oh, because they weren't <laughs> masculine before. Right, right. I mean, you know, paint colors would like always, you know, summer breeze or eggshell, but now they have things like wolf den and iced vodka, you know, because nothing is more manly than iced vodka. I think iced vodka is the color of vomit, right? Yeah, well, exactly. Wouldn't iced vodka be clear? That's a really good point, actually. That's Maybe it's just the suggestion of paint rather than actual paint. So they think there's a market here for, I guess, guys buying paint? Well, what they think it's going to be for, for, you know, the man cave. So you'll put in your pool table and your you know, beer tap, and then you'll paint the walls pimpin' the Trans Am. That's a, an actual... <laughs> what, what color yeah, Well, that? what was it before, actually? That was Peacock's Plume. So it used to be Peacock's so, Plume. I, don't, I have no idea what color that would even be. Tell me some more of the names. This is endlessly fun. Yeah. Uh, a, a color called Pillar, it seems perfectly non-offensive, sure. has been changed to Porcelain Throne. <laughs> because oh, men, men like the toilet, I guess. They, they have zero respect for Wait, us. Wait, I don't know if this is so right. much man versus woman or Canada versus good taste. Because... Uh, yeah, that seems more on the nose. Um, romance. They just added a B to it, so it's just become bromance. Oh. Because nothing says heteromasculinity like painting your walls with bromance. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a color called Venetian turquoise that has been changed to bro code. What? You know, the kind of rules for being dudes, I guess. Yes. All right. No, we I'm have glad. to go back to our beer time colored cubicles. Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to go paint my walls dirty socks. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Richard Lawson, thank you as always for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our ever-popular history lesson with booze. We begin by telling you the history, and today it's a tale from basketball history, since as of this recording, NBA players and owners still haven't worked out whether there will even be a season. Fingers crossed. Uh, Here's the story. This week back in 1979, one of the Philadelphia 76ers made a historic slam dunk. Michelle Phillippe is here to tell you about it. Before 1979, most basketball players just broke records. Daryl Dawkins taught them how to break other stuff. 
Dawkins was always a special player. He was the first kid ever drafted into the NBA straight out of high school. He clowned around on the court and played pranks on his own coach. And he asked announcers to introduce him in atypical fashion. From the planet Love Tron, 6'11 center, fifth year, Daryl Dawkins. But what Dawkins was really known for were slam dunks. He gave each a nickname. There was the Lookout Below, the Turbo Sexophonic Delight, the Yo Mama. And then, in a game against the Kansas City Kings, he made an epic play that deserved an epic title. That day, Dawkins leapt over defender Billy Robenzine and dunked the ball so hard, the glass backboard shattered. Shards rained onto the court and cut Robenzine's arms and legs. Fans in the audience said it sounded like a bomb had gone off. This is what's left of the Philadelphia 76ers backboard. Well, it's uncalled for, you know, it didn't have to happen, but that's Daryl Dawkins. Dawkins called the play the chocolate thunder flying, Robenzine crying, teeth shaking, glass breaking, rump roasting, bun toasting, wham bam, glass breaker, I am jam. The league had another name for it, dangerous. They made backboard breaking a finable offense, which didn't keep other players from occasionally doing it anyway. Today, NBA backboards are supposed to be shatterproof. Though Shaquille O'Neal once dunked so hard, the entire structure, backboard, basket, and pole collapsed. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Paul Rodriguez. He runs Village Whiskey and Tinto, two restaurants in Philadelphia, where Daryl Dawkins first destroyed a backboard. Paul, thanks for joining us. What cocktail did Daryl's story inspire you to make? Well, uh, Brendan, the name is too good, Chocolate Thunder, so we're just going to keep that because it's hard to come up with cocktail names as it is. That one's just a gimme. So that's right. Daryl Dawkins' self-given nickname was Chocolate Thunder, one of many. He also called himself Dr. Duncanstein and a bunch of others. (laughs) So what do we got? We're basically going to get a very high-proof bourbon um, called George Stag, which uh, gets released sort of limited uh, this time of year. Uh, um, it comes in at about 140 proof. Whew. We need something that's going to be, you know, thunderous. <laughs> so 141 proof means it's like 70% alcohol? Exactly. Whew. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's dangerous, but, but, but it works. Okay. So we're going to put that in. We're going to top that with a sort of unique liqueur from Italy called Varnali Mocha, hmm. which is more of coffee flavored, but it's got a sort of chocolate note. Okay. Sweet. Um, so you're going to have like sort of a, those two layered in a shot glass. So now we have the thunder and we have the chocolate. We have thunder and chocolate. Now we're going to dash a couple of uh, chocolate bitters on top to sort of accent the chocolate. Okay. And then we're going to pour ourselves a nice pint of stout beer. And uh, we're going to delicately or not so delicately dunk the bourbon and the uh, mocha into the uh, glass and we're going to uh, chug. <laughs> so this is kind of like, a, it's a variation on a car bomb almost. Exactly, exactly. It's it's dangerous. Once you're done, uh, something's getting shattered. <laughs> your, your nerves will be shattered. Did you ever see Daryl Dawkins play? Are you familiar with him? Uh, very familiar. Yeah, yeah. I grew up playing basketball. So, okay. you know, he was, he, he committed the most personal fouls too in NBA history. Really? That's a dubious distinction. <laughs> wow. That record still stands. Uh, it still stands. Philly pride. It's amazing. Exactly. There it is. 
So Rico, just to clarify, Daryl Dawkins holds the record for most personal fouls committed in a season. In one season. Yeah, so 386 fouls back in 1983. My God. <laughs> but he didn't commit the most career fouls. That distinction goes to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. All right. So basically, your hometown of Philly can't even claim a bad record. It is a sad state of affairs. Sorry. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like a record number of visits to our website this week. Nice. You can find our cocktail recipes there, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Today we hear from Judy Collins, one of the most popular folk singers of the 60s and 70s. And before she gets to the list, she's going to give us some background. Hi, I'm Judy Collins, singer, songwriter, activist, author. And, uh, of course, you may know that Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, which is my new memoir, was named after the song that Stephen Stills wrote for me in 1968 when we were having our great love affair. It's getting to the point where I'm no fun anymore. I am sorry. I am yours. You are mine. You are what you are. When I first heard Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, it's exciting. It was thrilling. It was really, I think, meant to get me back. It didn't do that. But on the other hand, we have been friends all the years, so maybe it did help. And now I will give you a list of songs that I wish had been written about me. My funny valentine. Number one on my list would be My Funny Valentine. When I hear My Funny Valentine, I always think about the guy that I wound up living with and married to for 33 years and the fact that he's perfect in an imperfect way. Your looks are laughable Unphotographable I don't mind being called a funny valentine. I've never had my nose fixed, but always thought I should. And in spite of the fact that I'm not, haven't reached the stage of perfection yet, I'm hoping my husband is still as devoted as he always was. Each day is Valentine's Day. Number two is Over the Rainbow. I first was introduced to Over the Rainbow in 1939 when I was born because that year The Wizard of Oz came out. My mother named me after Judy Garland. And I suppose it was written for Dorothy, but I wish it had been written for me. Later on, of course, I got to meet the man who wrote that song, Yip Harburg, who was a great hero of mine. And when I met him, he kept saying to me, you should really record Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And I said, well, it's not time for me in any way. Judy Garland was still alive, but now I have recorded it. And it does remind me that Yip wrote it for The Wizard of Oz. And he always said that he designed this script as a social fairy story where the young person with ideals could create a whole new world by exposing the corruption in the corporate world. Can 
last but not least, of course, is Adele's love song, and I just adore it. It breaks my heart, really, because it's about unconditional love. It's about whatever you're going to do, whether I've decided I have a list of things that I'm going to apply to you that I'd like to fix. It doesn't matter. I'll still love you. Very powerful song. I certainly can live with having had only one song written about me. Actually, I want to tell you something. Stephen Stills wrote a lot of songs he claims he wrote about me. In fact, they all exist on an album called Just Roll Tape, which disappeared for 40 years and then came out in 2007. And I called him and said, it's like getting a valentine after 40 years. The guest list from musician Judy Collins. She has a new memoir out. It's called Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Can you imagine being the partner of someone who has a classic rock song written about them? I mean, that must be so (laughs) annoying. You're having a meal at a restaurant, and then all of a sudden, you know, her song comes on. (laughs) Mood killed. Thank you, Stephen Stills. Exactly. None of your gifts are ever adequate. Gee, thanks for the Roomba. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Folks, we didn't write a song for you. I'm sorry. But coming up, we do have novelist Jonathan Lethem. That's not bad. And later, entrepreneur Sir Richard Branson tells me how to behave in the presence of a royal knight. Well, you meant to be on your knees, and obviously you weren't properly briefed. Stay tuned for more of The Dinner Party. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, a cool hour of culture to fuel your dinner party conversations this weekend. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, best-selling writer Jonathan Lethem travels through time with Drew Barrymore. Best-selling writers have all the fun. Sounds like it. And a bit later, we'll learn about how MTV momentarily put Oklahoma on the vanguard of fashion. People in Tulsa, Oklahoma were going into barbershops and asking for the Rod Stewart haircut. Yes, the mullet, another thing to blame on MTV. But first, it is time for our weekly etiquette segment in which we invite famous people to tell us how to deal politely with insensitive jerks. That's right. Normally in this segment, we have celebrities answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Sure. But this week, we have celebrities of etiquette. Yes, the stars of of the field. (laughs) We have Lizzie Post and Dan Post-Zenig. Oh, sorry. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You know, you nailed it. Really well done. See, that was polite of me to ask. Uh, Of the Emily Post Institute, they are the great, great, grandchildren of Emily Post, and they've released the 18th edition of Emily Post Etiquette. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. And I have to ask right off the bat, as Post, have you been haunted your whole life by the fact that you must be unfailingly (laughs) polite at all times? It sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) Right. It's like a ghost over our shoulder. No, it's been... We had a really casual upbringing. It, it was never something held over, at least in my family, it wasn't anything held over your head. I don't think, knowing your mom's, it wasn't held over your head either. Yeah, yeah absolutely not. I mean, there, there are some things in this life you uh, you don't have a whole lot of control over, and choosing your parents probably isn't one of those things <laughs> that you can take a lot of credit for. Right. So you don't have uh, therapy with the Roberts Rule of Order people. and uh... so It's so funny you mentioned the Roberts Rules. They just did their updated version as well. Uh-oh. And uh, we, we sit there and look at ourselves next to them on, on Amazon. Well, it's because America obviously needs to be civilized, which is why we have this segment. Now more than ever. (laughs) So we have some questions that we uh, asked our listeners to submit. Yeah, I'll start. Uh, This is from Deb in Pike National Forest, Colorado. Uh, She writes, I have a lot of allergies to food additives and expend effort to ensure every ingredient in my recipes is organic, fresh, and local. I have some dear friends who are aware of this 
But every time I invite them for an event, they stop at the supermarket and bring dessert from the, quote, bakery, unquote. (laughs) The ingredients are things I can't even pronounce, let alone eat, and these people know it. How can I ask them not to bring anything? She has already suggested that they shouldn't bring anything. Oh, Deb, I feel for you. This this happens all the time, Um, and it's definitely something where Deb's already done the best thing she can do, which is to say, oh, please don't bring anything. Don't worry yourself. Lots of guests feel they have to show up with something in hand, and... All I can say is that they they are not trying to give her a terrible allergic reaction. My father is allergic to all raw northern tree fruits. Try figuring that one out if you're the host. (laughs) And even now still, best friends of 30 years will bring over ice cream with, you know, raw fruit in it, and he can't eat it. And so you just got to kind of let it go. It's not that they're intending to do it. So so what do you do? Just ignore that dish? Yeah, yeah, you just kind of don't eat it. I mean, you don't have to serve it. You're never obligated to serve a dish that someone brings. You thank them for it. You accept the gift with the same gracious spirit of generosity with which it's given and and put it away in the icebox because you've taken some time to plan on a menu that you care about and are invested in. Guests understand that. And also, I don't know where Pike National Forest is, but I mean, local food, how much local food can there be in the winter (laughs) in Colorado? Right. Snow. Yeah, I think they have to stop and pick up a box of the Entenmann's. So we have another question from uh, Lizzie in Santa Monica. Oh, I like the name. Oh, yeah, there we go. Wait, (laughs) did you submit this question? Because that would be rude. Come on. So this is actually something that your new edition, I think addresses directly, emoticons and emails. Are they ever appropriate in a professional situation? Do they make me sound 13? So we'll answer those in order. No, yes, no. The, 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 key, the key word here is in a professional setting. And the answer is no. You don't want to use emoticons. In business, we're going to default to the more formal behavior. You're going to try to avoid all caps, emoticons, or even text message speak. And it does depend, too, on your rapport. I mean, you got to think about the industry you work in and the company culture that you have. I mean... I definitely will shoot smiley faces to, to one of our colleagues, but never out of the box do you just start out with emoticons and text speak and that sort of thing. Right. Dear president of Microsoft, yeah, smiley right? face. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Here's our question number three. Jeff in Long Island, he writes, I just started graduate school and my randomly chosen roommate is very smart but absent-minded. We live in a low-rise, and I'll come home at night to find the kitchen blinds open with lights on, all the cabinets open. (laughs) Is his name Dexter? (laughs) Scary. It reminds me of the sixth sense, and it creeps me out, he says. Is there a good way to address my issues with a guy I just met, after all? Yeah, this is one of those where, especially because you were randomly thrown together, it is important to periodically kind of broach the subject of, hey, man, I just want to check in and, and see how things are going. Is there anything about our living situation that you want to improve. Open up the conversation. Now, you got to be open mm. to him then telling you some things about yourself and your own behavior that might be on his mind. But I it does see. give you the language to start talking about it, and in a positive way. I think this is that's a totally brilliant suggestion. But it, the thing that I find funny about it is that it's also a trick. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, uh. It's a trick. It's a confidence <laughs> scheme. I, I actually want X, but I'm going to pretend to be talking about Y. I am manipulative. It, it is it a is. Little bit. I mean, there's a certain amount of manipulation that comes with the proper etiquette. So, would you be the roommate who would then say to me, I know what you're doing, what's on your mind? Yeah, that's true. What happens if that happens? Just face it and say, Hey, I just wanted to talk to you about this, you know. Jeff, you're scaring the hell out of me. <laughs> I'll jump in. One of the things that's so refreshing about Lizzie is that she is, she is so brutally honest. <laughs> 
and yes. and it really you can, you can approach subjects from all kinds of different directions without actually manipulating people if you're if you're operating from a place of integrity and and sincerity. All right, so we have our last question, and um, this comes from Cassandra, who lives at Facebook. Hmm. Her question is: At a dinner party, what is the best and subtlest way to figure out the name of a fellow guest whose name escapes you? Though at one point you have spent significant time and memorable <laughs> events with them, e.g., your next door neighbor who moved away only six months ago. Oh Dude, no! My, my my parents sometimes confuse me with the dogs, L- Lizzie, Anna, Avery, whoever you are. I mean, it it happens even with the people we know really well. You blank for a minute. You know who the person is. But how do you how do you extricate from that? You admit your predicament. You apologize and you move on. Yeah. You don't dwell in that uncomfortable place. Yeah. I know I should be knowing your name. We've been neighbors for years, but it's totally escaping me right now. I don't know, man. I, this I, is a real quandary. I would, just, I would just, because according to another book that was just reintroduced recently, the Carnegie How to Succeed in Business, a person's name is the sweetest word in their lexicon. Yeah. It's so important. It's, it is. It is really important. And if you forget it, I mean, that's cultural suicide. Yeah. It's, it's a major mistake. But how you handle your mistakes is as important as how you handle your successes. Yeah. And everyone's going to be confronted with a mistake at some point. Forgetting someone's name is a pretty bad one, but it happens. Dan, I have a question. Are you a father by any chance? Not yet. I hope to be so fortunate someday. All right. You sound so nice and reasonable. I just want to call you even when we're not on the show. What do I sound like? (laughs) Lizzie's feeling left out. This is borderline impolite right now. And yet it's really interesting. (laughs) Great radio, bad, bad etiquette. Uh, Lizzie Post and Dan Post-Senning, they've got etiquette in their genes. They're genetically engineered. They've got genetic it. (laughs) Thank you so much for teaching us how to behave. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Being nice and having manners, these are things that we all should know. I hope that you have learned some manners. Thank you now and you may go. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for making our etiquette segment possible because we got all those questions from our listeners. That's right, for real. And we'll need more questions for next week's guest. Host of hosts Dick Cavett will be here. Man, I'm such a fan. I'm not even going to know how to behave around it. Well, you should ask him. That's a good point. And folks, if you have any etiquette questions for Mr. Cavett, we'll ask those too. Submit them at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Author Jonathan Lethem has a new book out called The Ecstasy of Influence. This week, we overhear him reading a dinner party worthy excerpt. This is called The Drew Barrymore Stories. I wrote it for a, a fashion magazine that was running a giant. Drew Barrymore issue, so her face was going to be on the cover, and she was also going to be the curator for the magazine. And they also wanted a writer to write about her. Well, this is this is what I ended up doing. I guess I just think of her as a kind of effervescent figure who floats over her own celebrity, and so I, I put her in various scenarios where she could do that. The Drew Barrymore Stories. One, I was riding in an elevator in a London hotel with Alfred Hitchcock and Drew Barrymore. Alfred Hitchcock said, Do you think he opened the box of poisoned chocolates yet? Though I knew it was only one of Alfred Hitchcock's deadpan jokes, I grew nervous. Drew Barrymore smiled and laughed, so infectiously that I couldn't help laughing myself. She said, I took the poisoned chocolates out and replaced them with chocolates filled with sympathy and affection. Even Alfred Hitchcock began laughing now. Two. John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Drew Barrymore and I were backstage at a nightclub in Chicago. Miles Davis was berating John Coltrane for playing a 20-minute solo. 
I was trying not to be noticed. Drew Barrymore was picking through a box of chocolates an admirer had sent backstage, biting into several of them to examine the filling. John Coltrane said, I don't know how to stop playing. Miles Davis said, just take the damn horn out of your mouth. Drew Barrymore said, or if you wanted to, you could just begin playing very softly until you were so quiet that the others could play over you. Miles Davis said, that would be fine too, yes. Three. Ernest Hemingway and Howard Hawks and John Coltrane and Drew Barrymore and I were in a fishing boat on the Snake River in Colorado. John Coltrane and Drew Barrymore were baiting fish hooks with whiskey-filled chocolates an admirer had sent to Hemingway. I was trying to make coffee on a Bunsen burner. Howard Hawks said to Ernest Hemingway, I bet you I could make a good movie out of your worst book. Ernest Hemingway said, what book is that? Howard Hawks said, that piece of crap known as to have and have not. Drew Barrymore said, look over there. We all turned, and Drew Barrymore pushed Howard Hawks out of the boat. Four. Gertrude Stein and Jack London and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Jack Kerouac and Truman Capote and Drew Barrymore and I were in a large outdoor hot tub in Sausalito, playing a drinking game called What's Your Secret? Gertrude Stein said, small audiences. Truman Capote said, it's not your turn, Gertrude, it's Scott's. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there are no second acts in American lives. I started to ask him whether he meant that American lives skipped straight to the third act, but the others ignored me. Jack London said, if you put some eggshells in with the coffee grounds, it leaches the acid out of the coffee and it tastes a lot better. Jack Kerouac mumbled something nobody could make out, and Truman Capote said, that's not writing, Kerouac, that's typing. Drew Barrymore got out of the hot tub and put on her robe and said, does anyone want hot chocolate instead of coffee? I don't have any eggshells, but I do have marshmallows. Five. I was running in the New York Marathon with Laurence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman and John Coltrane and Drew Barrymore, only Laurence Olivier was riding a banana yellow moped. Drew Barrymore was accepting orange slices and Dixie cups of chocolate milk from the crowds at the police barriers and laughing infectiously, but Dustin Hoffman and John Coltrane and I were too out of breath to join in. By the time we crossed the Kosciuszko Bridge into Long Island City, Dustin Hoffman looked terrible, and I was concerned he wouldn't be able to finish the race. Laurence Olivier said, what's the matter? Dustin Hoffman said, I was up all last night because I wanted this scene to look realistic. Laurence Olivier said, why don't you try acting, my boy? We all looked at Laurence Olivier like he was an ass. Drew Barrymore said, I know a shortcut. Dustin Hoffman said, to acting? Drew Barrymore said, no, a shortcut, and she pointed past the police barriers at our left. We all turned our heads, and when we looked back, she was gone. That was author Jonathan Lethem reading from his new book of collected works called The Ecstasy of Influence, not the influence of ecstasy, which you might assume after hearing that. You're listening to The Dinner Party from APM, American Public Media. And now it's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where someone who knows something we don't tells us about it. So if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. Our teacher this week is Craig Marks. He is a former editor of Spin Magazine, current editor-in-chief of Pop Dust, and he co-wrote the brand new book, I Want My MTV. It is an oral history of music videos and MTV in particular. And Craig, welcome. Uh, thank you. Great to be here. So first thing I'd like you to teach us, this book is the size of a loaf of bread. Why is MTV worth 
devoting so much conversation to. And that's only the first decade of MTV. That's right. I think most people think of it now as a channel full of reality shows with half-naked teenagers. Why is MTV so important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. Foremost in my mind is that it... Uh, was the platform for this new art form that uh, called music videos, which when MTV started, there are only about 150 music videos in the entire universe. <laughs> uh, so they, they, they bet their entire programming future on the fact that, A, the record companies would give them these promotional clips for free that they weren't really doing very much with, the record companies, and B, that it would prove so successful and bands would sell so many records from this that the record labels would have to make more of them and make better and more expensive versions of those videos. Which it turns out they did. And I found it fascinating how MTV found out in those early days that record sales actually were increasing due to MTV. Mm -hmm. And it has, amazingly, something to do with Tulsa, Oklahoma. It does. Well, in these early days of cable television, there wasn't that much cable television in America. And most of the communities that had cable television were rural or small cities because it was much cheaper for the cable operators to lay down the wires there. Mm. So MTV launched in August of 81, and come September, uh, you know, they were running out of videos already because how many Rod Stewart videos can you can one channel play? Are you kidding? Endless uh, amounts. Endless. Well, it turned out that it was pretty close. So <laughs> they sent two of their executives to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which had some neighborhoods in Tulsa were wired for cable and carried MTV, and some didn't. And they needed to prove to the record companies that they were helping them sell records and creating stars. So they did this in two ways. One was they walked into a barbershop where they heard that people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, were going into barbershops and asking for the Rod Stewart haircut, which was that kind of spiky on top and mullet, you know, kind of crazy looking thing. That's where that came from. Yeah. And Rod Stewart had not appeared in Tulsa or slept with any of the women of Tulsa. Surprisingly. Yeah. And then more importantly... They found out, they went into record stores, and they learned that these kooky bands with funny haircuts, Flock of Seagulls and the Stray Cats and Duran Duran, were selling lots of records. People were going into the record store and saying, I want that Duran Duran record. And And they didn't have it, probably. You know, the guy at the record store was like, you want what? But they ordered them, and they got them in, and this is how MTV figured out that that it was working. Let's get, if we're going to talk about MTV in conversation with someone who really knows their stuff, it seems like we should know uh, a little bit about the history of the music video itself. What is the first music video? Well, according to the authors of I Want My MTV, there there really is no first music video. As soon as there were talkies, there were what seem like music videos. Then they became these things called scopatones, which were these huge machines that played these kind of very uh, sexual performance clips from various different artists. By which uh, you mean that they actually showed someone's shoulder back in those days. Well, even even more so, even some midriff, I think. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the Rolling Stones made videos. In a lot of ways, the, the kind of the first modern music video was probably Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. I was going to say, that's the one I think I, I hear most often mentioned. Right, and a lot of the bands in our book and directors, uh, Robert Smith from The Cure and a whole bunch of people say they remember when they saw that on Top of the Pops in England, and it, it seems like a bolt from the future. Yeah, and why? You know? what, what made them do that? Uh, in the case of Queen, uh, when a song got to number one on the charts, the band would have to play Top of the Pops. That was the kind of the implicit or explicit rule. The TV Top show. Top of the Pops was a really popular television show, sure. a countdown show. And Queen just didn't want to play it. They were <laughs> sick of it. So they made this very cheap clip. Uh, in the book, you know, the, the director talks about like using a broomstick and a prism and duct tape to create that sort of multiplying effect that where you see a hundred Freddie Mercury's <laughs> off in the distance. And so, somehow so, this thing that was so crude 
seemed like the most progressive thing ever made. And it just caught everybody's imagination. It makes somehow it makes sense that rock videos would have been born of laziness, you know, since <laughs> right. that's and then what, they all went to the pub. Sure. And that's yeah. also what all us couch potatoes did in the 80s and 90s, just sitting there watching them. <laughs> Craig Marks, thank you for the MTV class. Next stop, Harvard, maybe? Mm, probably not. MTV 101. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. And Brendan, this would be a song from the band Fine Young Cannibals, because mm-hmm. I think this is the first video I actually saw on MTV, which is crazy to me to think that this was over 25 years ago. And it's crazy to think MTV once played music <laughs> on television. It was a simpler time. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Sir Richard Branson's life is way different than yours. Well, Al Gore banged on my door. I I thought, well, he was a vice president. I better let him in. More of that when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new track from the band Tennis. First basketball, now tennis. It's a very sportif show we have going on here this week. It is. <laughs> and coming up, we will speak with Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson, who owns a lot of things, but I don't think a sports team is one of them. Not yet. Weirdly. First, though, it is time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, there's a food battle being waged in our country. Oh, no. Not the Cola Wars again. (laughs) Mercifully, no. Well, maybe. Uh, The war is between healthy snacks like fruit and veggies and unhealthy snacks like chips and soda. Soda. (laughs) I knew it. That's right. It always comes back to that. Uh, Well, the new front in this war is in East L.A., where the UCLA School of Public Health is redesigning four corner stores to see if they can get people eating healthier. So like little markets? Exactly, like bodegas. So recently I went to one of those stores, Yash's La Casa Market, and I met up with Mike Prelip, a professor involved in the project. Hmm. The first thing I asked him was if we were standing in what public health people call a food desert. I think East L.A. is an example of what others might be calling a food swamp. What does that mean? Well, I think that a food desert implies that there's no good food anywhere. That's not the East L.A. community. There's a lot of really good food here, but there's a lot of other food options. And so kind of to find the good food among all of the not-so-good food is East L.A. perhaps. And so what we're trying to do is kind of change the kind of the makeup of it so there's more options. So it's it's just as easy for the kids down the street from the high school to walk by here and get a piece of fruit as it is to go somewhere else and grab a bag of chips. Why the corner market? Well, that's a really good question. And especially in many communities like East L.A., and other low-income communities around the U.S., the corner store is actually the place where a lot of people go and shop. It may seem like just because there's a market a mile down the road that that's really accessible. Well, not necessarily, because not everyone can hop in a car to go shopping. And also, I mean, people just walk by here and buy stuff. As we can hear, as people are walking by now. I got here a few minutes ago, and a lot of the high school kids were walking by, and I was looking at what they were purchasing, and I got to tell you, I looked at three of the four, they had purchased a fruit or a vegetable. And I was, real, I was like surprised. I was like, this is what I, what I want to see. The other one had some chips, but that's okay. If fruits and vegetables really are better for kids, if they're going to eat them anyway, and people can make money doing them, how did we arrive at this point where your average corner store 
doesn't really sell the stuff. It's really easier to sell products that stay on the shelf a long time. And when food is processed and it's sealed in a plastic bag, it has a long shelf life. An apple, other fruits and vegetables, not such a long shelf life. So it's just, it's there's there a guy just went out with a, with a fruit fruit salad. Oh, wow, great! That makes me really that makes me really happy. Uh, you have no idea how happy that makes me to see that rather than the bag of chips. It's, you're doing a couple of things here. You kind of spruced up the place, and then you also kind of rearranged the food. Yeah. For a lot of the corner stores, they're not always the most inviting places to come. And so one of the things we did was try to make this just seem like a really much more friendly place. We've added windows in front. We've painted. We've painted inside. We've added some display cabinets that make it easier to show off the fruits and vegetables. All right, well, let's uh, simulate their experience. We're coming home from high, we're coming home from high school here. We're at this bright corner market, which we're going to pass anyway. Let's walk in, and, and then you can talk to me about some of the changes we made here. One of the first changes that you'll see is bales of hay with some really great-looking fruits and vegetables. And before what used to be here was the famous rack of chips that are virtually in almost every corner store. And you start looking at the fruits and vegetables, and they, they go on and on and on, and there's more and more. So we're looking at bananas, watermelons, we have pears, we have apples, avocados. If you look at the store, what we've done is kind of bring the healthier food to the forefront and some of the less healthful food toward the back. I think we do have to go acknowledge what used to be in the front here. Yeah, okay, absolutely. <laughs> so here are the culprits, fronted probably because they're affordable and cheap, and they kind of look colorful and kind of delicious, those Doritos. You know, there's no question that the Doritos look really good, and I can see they're two for a dollar, which is a really good bargain. And as someone who's really interested in people eating good food, I'm not opposed to them eating this food either. The, the chips, the candy, the soda, those should be special food and not on my way to school, on my way home from school, when I get home from school, before I go to bed food. It should be a few times a week food. The spice of life, not the main course. Exactly, the spice of life. You know, watching the kids who were leaving a little while ago, grabbing the cut up fruits and vegetables and eating that, they only did that because it was here. Otherwise, they would have had some chips. So how would you respond to people who would say, this is social engineering, you're creating an artificial demand, you know, if people wanted fruits and veggies, they'd already be in the markets. Well, you know, I think when it comes to food and food consumption and food production and food marketing in the United States, it's social engineering. All of it is. And there's been a lot of effort to make us want to consume certain types of food. And right now, we need to fix that. So bottom line though, you know, if this doesn't make money or if it doesn't benefit the owners, it's probably going to disappear when you guys are no longer here. And what are you learning so far around that? Well, you know, we're at the early stages, but what we do know from other people's efforts, we've got to be really concerned about the sustainability issue. And, and I would consider our efforts a failure if we can't figure out how to make this a money-making um, effort. Um. Well, let's talk to the owners to see how this is working. Can I get your name? My name is Balavinder Sanju. All right, and your name? My name is Kulwant Sangu. You guys have the same last name, so you're related. And I'm his wife. <laughs> that makes sense. And so how long have you uh, had this corner shop? Oh, uh, We have a 10 years for that here. Business has been relatively good? That's good, yeah. Little bit increased the business, yes. When we start the, this produce business, we buy like a one case. And now, we this second time, we order two of each. And this time, I think is we order three of each. 
because you're selling more. Yes, which more selling it. You have to be careful when it's fresh because it can't hold as long as frozen. So it's difficult as a business owner, no? It's not too too much as that. It's not too much as that. You just need to be careful. In a week, maybe I lost for the like a two dollar or five dollar, no more than this. So have you changed your eating habits? Oh yes, of course. Before I every time. When I need something is feel it, I go by the uh, take the chips, I grab them, eat them, I and then I eat the candy. Is this kind of stuff is now I did I quit for my chips maybe in a year once a while, not every time mate. What is your favorite chip? Hot fries. Wait, hot fries are your favorite chips? <laughs> yes. Now she eats fruit every day. Now she eats fruit every day, so there's been a change. And have you noticed has she been happier now? So, uh, she's losing weight. Yeah, she's losing weight. I'm losing weight, 30 pounds. Really? Uh, before I had a like big stomach, and now I had a clean up. So, Brendan, the term food swamp. Yeah. I used to think that was the crisper drawer in the bottom of my college <laughs> refrigerator. Is that why you're missing a few fingers? Yeah. Rooting around there for a Schmidt's ice one day, and I don't know what a Schmidt's ice is. <laughs> but yes, and I'd rather not talk about it. Folks, if you do want to talk about something, uh, our Facebook page is a good place to do it. Yes. Facebook.com slash Dinner Party Download. Our guest of honor this week is Sir Richard Branson. He has been called the ultimate multipreneur. He is chairman of Virgin Group, which includes the private spaceflight company Virgin Galactic. He holds the world's record, I believe, for the fastest crossing of the English Channel in an amphibious vehicle. He is currently involved with the nuclear weapons reduction movement, Global Zero, and Sir Richard, welcome. I've never had an introduction quite like that, but anyway, nice to talk to you. Really? I would assume that you'd have much more fancy. It was these something in there, anyway, that one. Oh, the the multipreneur? Multipreneur, all right, I'll I'll remember that one, that's great. I read it in a blog. I'll I'll, I'll accept it. Anyway, all very friendly, thank you very much. I do do actually want to know, you're the first knight I've ever met. Is there a protocol for how how I refer to you? Well, you meant to be on your knees. You didn't. Really, you obviously weren't properly briefed. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, everybody calls me Richard. The only time I ever hear the word Sir Richard is sometimes when I'm walking down a street in America and I look around thinking there's some Shakespearean play taking place. But <laughs> somebody calls out Sir Richard. Hey, <laughs> no, some people who are knighted um, like the sound of so this or so that. But uh, anyway, Richard, I find a bit more friendly. Did you actually have like the sword on the shoulder sort of coronation I, I, type I, thing? I did. It was. It was. I was slightly worried because. Um, when I was in my youth, I put out a record by the Sex Pistols called God Save the Queen. And That's right, when you were a record executive, not the most flattering ode to Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, um, and I had a feeling that she might actually have you know, sliced the head off rather than actually <laughs> tap my shoulder. But um, anyway, she was very friendly. I think she either forgot or she'd chosen it was not the right occasion to bring it up. <laughs> I think it's the latter. She's a woman of great grace. Very good grace. And now as one of her knights, I'm there to defend her. I won't cross you, man. Let, let us talk about Global Zero, which is a movement to reduce the nuclear weapon stockpile to zero. I know for myself, when I was in high school, there was this big moment watching the day after where it suddenly struck me what the reality of nuclear war might be. What for you sort of made this an issue you care so much about? Well, I saw the same film uh, and I've been to Japan, Nagasaki, uh, Hiroshima, I've met some of the few relatives of relatives, and it would be un- unforgivable to ever allow it to happen again. So, you know, even if we can start by halving the number of nuclear weapons in the world, that will send a good moral message out to nations that don't have nuclear weapons at the moment and say the major countries that have this 
arsenal are doing something about it. But we're we're talking on the 25th anniversary year of Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev having their infamous summit at Reykjavik to start global nuclear reduction. It's been 25 years. Why is this going to work now? Uh, it didn't have leadership. Now, in America, for instance, you have President Obama, who um, has committed himself to it. You have a, a great willingness in uh, Russia to do something about it as well. And you also have economies that are on their knees. I mean, the amount of money that is spent on the military and on nuclear weapons is horrendous. You know, if, if you reduce the amount of nuclear weapons to the three or four hundred that America needs uh, just for deterrence, you, you would save three quarters of the nuclear budget in a year and it would sort out many of America's problems. I, I think that's sort of ironic because I, I do think that as the economy has declined, nuclear reduction has actually fallen lower on the list of priorities. It's not seen as important. It is such an easy win. The president you know, has the power, I would suggest to him, and also to the prime minister of Britain, who's thinking about upgrading our nuclear arsenal and, and other presidents and prime ministers around the world. This is an easy win. Do this, and that will make all the other problems that you've got on your shoulders that much easier. You're philanthropic in a number of areas, one of which is anti-global warming initiatives in a lot of ways. I read that you were once a global warming skeptic and that your mind was changed over a dinner with Al Gore. Am I getting that right? Well, Al Gore banged on my door about five, six years ago at my home in London. And when I opened the door and saw him standing there, I, I, I thought, well, he was a vice president. I better let him in. He just like showed up at your house one night. Oh, actually, it wasn't. It was about mid, midday. And he hadn't released Inconvenient Truth, but I think he treated me a bit like a guinea pig. He, he practiced on me. And I was an attentive guinea pig. And as a result, I also decided to meet other scientists, James Hansen, and, and, and also met some of the skeptics. But all in all, decided that the world, more likely than not, had a major problem. Was there like a magic sentence that suddenly something clicked in your head? I mean, if only there was, that would just make it that much easier to right. ra rally the world. If only you could see it and it wasn't invisible. But I, th I think it was just, you know, if 95% of scientists in the world believe something, it is quite likely that it's right. And as an insurance policy, if nothing else, if 95% of people say you're going to be knocked over if you cross the road, it's best, most likely to take what they say on board and find some other way of getting across the road. All right. I should say this is a culture show. So I should pivot from politics and get into music. You got your start as a businessman, as Virgin Records, sort of a rock and roll record mogul at a time when being a rock and roll record mogul was probably the coolest and craziest thing a businessman could possibly do. You mentioned before, you signed the Sex Pistols. What was it like moving on, and also kind of why did you move on to square businesses like airlines? Um, look, it's a good question. Um, I love challenging myself. I love learning. And we're hanging with the Rolling Stones, man. Yeah, I, I mean, and yeah, we, we, we signed some great bands. You know, it was tremendous fun. But, you know, I remember, what is it, 25 years ago, flying on, you know, I flew a lot on other people's airlines here in America. And it was abysmal. I mean, just uh, just unbearable. And uh, thank God that's changed. So anyway, we, we set up airlines like Virgin America and Virgin Atlantic. And, you know, I can still listen to music. If I'm really desperate to hang out with a rock band, I mean, I'm still good friends with Peter Gabriel. We'll, we'll go and hang out together. So he'll deign to go get a drink with you. Not suffering too much. All right. We asked two questions of everyone on this show. First question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What are you? What's the question you're sort of sick of being asked? How did you come up with the name Virgin? <laughs> 
I think I know this, but you're welcome to tell it if you don't mind. <laughs> well, I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> the end. Uh, all right, moving on. What? Tell us something we don't know, either about yourself or about the world that will just blow people's minds that's sort of fun? Or... Uh, the best sport in the world is kite surfing. Um, that's what I spend my hobby doing. Kite surfing? Kite surfing. Basically, you, you put a massive kite up above your head. It's about 10 foot by 4 foot. And you put a couple of planks on your feet and you go into the sea and off you, off you go at maybe 20, 30 miles an hour. You're a guy that once broke the record for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. How is kite surfing still like interesting to you? Um, well, I'm about, I'm about to head off with my children to see if we can break the record for the crossing of the English Channel kite surfing. So we're still out there doing a, little, a few record, fun record attempts. But I highly, highly recommend kite surfing. You're just out there for two or three hours, um, blown by the wind. Uh, no, no blackberries, no phones. Uh, Although pretty soon there's not going to be blackberries here on dry land either. Yeah, no, yeah, that's true. Man, talk about a guy who's done everything. Right, we didn't even get into his adventures in hot air ballooning. Virgin Galactic just set up the first private spaceport in New Mexico. That's amazing, is... but most amazing is he made money on a record label. <laughs> I didn't even know that was possible. That's true. These days it would be just the most incredible feat. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is the dinner party for this week. Next time, pop songwriter and producer Nile Rogers tells us how he wrote the quintessential disco tune. And I instantly started doing this jam, something like Get behind a velvet rope and wait for that, or yep. sign up for our podcast so you're sure not to miss a single episode of the show. We're at dinnerpartydownload.org. The assistant producer of The Dinner Party is Jackson Musker. Thanks this week to Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Brendan Willard, and Nihar Patel. And we leave you now with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or departing from your next dinner party. The band is called Tennis. They made a big splash last year with an album of songs about the seven-month boat trip they took through the Atlantic. Lucky them. Hence the word splash. Uh, Here's an advanced listen to their next single, Origin. It'll be released December 6th on Forest Family Records. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party this week. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Who do you think that is? What can you do about the climate crisis? Al, are you visiting everybody?